Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. Now, while he was with them at the table, he took the bread and said the blessing. Then he broke it and handed it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he'd vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Luke 24, verses 30 to 32. Two of Jesus' disciples, unnamed, were on their way to Emmaus, And Jesus walked by their side, but something prevented them from recognizing him. Do you wonder what it was? It could be many things. Disbelief in the stories they'd heard of the resurrection. The impossibility of someone coming back to life after death. Hard-heartedness. That although Jesus had been a prophet and talented teacher, in the end he had not fit the stereotype of saviour Jews had of that time. Perhaps disappointment that he hadn't been the one to set Israel free as they imagined he could. They prided themselves of being able to recognize the Savior when they saw one. And when Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, they mentally kicked themselves for almost buying into his salvation story when it didn't resemble anything they expected. What about ignorance? Jesus called them foolish men along the road and then taught them as they walked. And still their minds were closed until he blessed and broke the bread and gave it to them. Have you ever done that? been so convinced at how you want something to be that you miss the subtlety of reality and feel disappointed. I did it with my favourite beverage of all things, fizzy water. I sipped some and it was unexpectedly sweet. Instead of savouring the delicate strawberry flavour, I chose to go without. I missed the really delicious tanginess of strawberry in the fizzing fruity drink because I wanted it to be exactly what I expected. So with these disciples... Something in their heads stopped them from recognising their mentor and teacher, their saviour. Something that said it couldn't happen, so it hadn't. When they did eventually see him, they rushed back to Jerusalem, a seven-mile dash, to confirm the truth. Let's drive away all the barriers that prevent us from seeing that Christ is our saviour and enjoy the warmth of our hearts burning. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest this week, Gretchen Rowe, is returning to talk to us about single homeschoolers and unemployment. I'll also be excerpting from my book, talking about Easter break and looking at unemployment and what it means for the digitally challenged group in our society, the over 50s. I'm really enjoying Garibaldi's this week, biscuits with raisins in them. My brother used to tell me they were squashed flies, and I have to admit, perhaps they could be, but oh, so sweet. I've Earl Grey for a change, so sit down and tune in for a swift hour of English accent and banter. Easter break is almost behind us, and with it the entering of her youngest daughter's final term at her performing arts college. Although she may not seek to work here in London, she has certainly learned a lot and discovered that she is a good all-rounder, something she may not have experienced had she gone to dance school. The week before her break, they had what they called performance awards at the school. All week she'd participated in dancing, singing and acting for, for her peers, 
in selections ranging from monologue, singing, solos and choreography. Students and faculty voted to send a few to the finals, which were judged by two artists currently working in the West End, Alison Pollard, who will be the assistant director on the Broadway transfer of the Book of Mormon later this year, and Ian Waller, who is currently the resident director on the international tour of Mamma Mia. Proud parents of the finalists were also invited to attend for a small fee. To say that Malia was stunning would only be natural coming from my mouth. But she was. She treated us to modern jazz and a variation from the Sugar Plum Fairy on point, as well as a monologue from the notebook and a song. These latter two were different from the pieces that had awarded her a place in the final. In a short week, everyone had to come up with another song and drama piece, rather like a callback. The pressure was on as she was competing in the dancing against one of her good friends. They were both on point, performing the same ballet piece on the stage together, which was really difficult and a little unfair, but who says the entertainment business is fair? When the time came, though, she was just excited. She loves performing. She won the jazz section and was runner-up in the ballet, which was a total surprise since ballet is her forte. But there were only two of them, and in my eyes, she fulfilled the title of the whole competition and performed her enchaînement exquisitely and to the audience. It is apparent to me that she is much more prepared to audition with the big guns now. And after another term, wow, the sky's the limit. Well, let's go to my book excerpt from chapter 22, entitled The Outside Draws In, which deals with college and jobs. My memoir looks at my final years at school and how my parents' experience as young adults in the workforce affected their view of education. My last two years at boarding school were marked by the fact that my parents were home from abroad. They travelled back by cruise ship, a favourite passage, which they'd taken twice before during leaves. They took their time and finally arrived in London just as my summer holidays were beginning. They took inventory of the house, which had been let to the army, remember the vision of hobnailed boots, and recarpeted before we went to Italy for our one-month camping holiday, which I tolerated at the age of 16 because any boyfriends I had from school were far flung around the world and not available for going out with during the holidays. On our return, we put central heating in the house. My mother was so pleased about this. If she said it once, she said it a thousand times. Not many people can afford to return home after a long holiday and install central heating in their home. She was chuffed that finally they had a disposable income. This was probably the start of the reaping of benefits phase of their lives, when all their hard work and fervent saving finally began to pay off. Their entry into the workforce after leaving school didn't offer them much for future. Young people without a higher education back in the late 30s and early 40s didn't get far. I'm not surprised that my parents felt they'd earned their pending retirement and the guaranteed pension awarded to them after so many years of faithful service in the Foreign Office working for the government. I'm also not surprised by their insistence on giving us the best education they could afford. To them, a degree was tantamount to success. My mother and father left school at 14. The education laws in England at that time provided school up to 13 or 14-year-olds. And after that, these young adults, as they were considered, either went to work or, if their parents had the money, enrolled in a grammar school to prepare them for university. Having the money didn't mean that these were fee-paying establishments, it meant that the family didn't need the additional income brought in by their still-dependent minors. Both my parents' parents needed the additional money. 
I know this about my mother. She was a track runner and had had the opportunity to run for the County of London. This never materialised because her mandatory school days came to an end and she left school to go to work in a sweet shop. After a few years of confection, she took a more sophisticated job in a jeweller's. At 20, she applied to work as a clerk with the British Control Commission and was posted to Germany as part of the conquering forces after the war. My father's first job after leaving school was as an engraver with his father. He'd engrave radio dials, as far as I know, so that people could tune in to their favourite stations. He also must have taken his civil service exams to gain entry into the British Control Commission. It was a newly created department in 1945 and must have been widely publicised, offering a great opportunity for young people who wanted to travel and get a good steady job with the government, where a guaranteed pension was on offer. He too was sent to Germany at the end of the war, and that is where my parents met. My father had to work very hard to achieve promotions and did eventually end up as first secretary to the ambassador in the British Diplomatic Corps when he was in Iran, our final posting. My parents were forever hiding their humble backgrounds and lack of education as they rubbed shoulders with public school boys from Eton and Harrow, Oxford and Cambridge, and they wanted none of that for their children. I remember my mother cleaning an office up the street from where we lived in London when I was preparing to take my 11 plus exam which would get me into the grammar school whose grounds bordered onto our back garden, if I passed. Flinching at the idea of my having to attend a comprehensive school if I failed, somewhere on the train line instead of the convent round the corner, spurred my mother into taking up employment as a char. She'd leave the house before our breakfast because the offices had to be cleaned by the time the employees arrived. She'd finish at about 11am and be home by the time my brother and I knocked on the door for lunch. We never really noticed that she worked. The money was, be, was to be used to pay the fees at the grammar school if I didn't pass the exam. I passed the exam with flying colours. My father was posted to Beirut, and there the story takes us right up to the part where they're recarpeting and putting central heating into their Georgian cottage in London during my final years at boarding school. I was now a senior prefect in charge of the older forms and was to eventually become head girl. I earned a lot of respect for my calm manner and skills at negotiating with the pushover headmistresses, of which we had two in my final year. Actually, in my final years. I was in sixth form, which comprised of only a few girls preparing for and taking their A levels, advanced levels. My class of 17 dwindled to six. I can still remember their names. Claire, Cheryl, Moya, Alex, Maureen and me. Maureen and I were best friends and together we set out to change the boring choices of A-levels available to us. We wanted to take sociology, which the geography teacher agreed to teach us, and with one coup under our belts we agreed to history and English as our other two options. There was French, art and religion also on offer, none of which I was interested in. I don't know why we took three, probably because university required them, but the only career choices made available to us were that of nurse, armed forces and teacher. None of these three appealed to me at all, but my parents told me in no uncertain terms that I was to go to university, get a degree in anything at all, and then I'd be free to do what I liked. Their obligations towards me would be finished as far as financial support and responsibility went. We would be at liberty to go our separate ways, which for the most part we'd already been doing. I took my three A's, which amounted to a lot of reading, which I loved, there was also plenty of time to walk, experiment with smoking, sneak out to the nearby towns and fields to meet with boys, innocently I must stress, 
We'd already been scandalised by one of the girls getting into trouble with one of the boys at the local Catholic grammar school. She'd had to disappear for months and never came back as a pupil. The boys' school was declared off-bounds from then on, and we were reluctantly allowed to mingle, heavily chaperoned, with the Protestant boys' school of Stowe. By the time I was in upper sixth, I was all that. I enjoyed my role as head girl, the power it bestowed, the responsibility it demanded, and the respect I commanded. And it's time for me to go on a small, on a short break. My guest this week is returning to talk to us about not only homeschooling on one income in a two-income world, but the possibility facing, for some of us in this unsteady economic climate, homeschooling with no income, at least for a season. My friend Gretchen Rowe is community liaison for Calvert School and a homeschooling mother of six with a very flexible family dynamic at the moment. We've talked about many topics during her visits to my show over the years, ranging from Calvert School careers, webinars, blogging, family, traditions, and a new venture called Vertice for Language-Based Learning Differences. All our conversations are on podcast at iTunes or on my show page at Tokinet. So go and check the archives to listen to some of our past chats. And I will be back after this break. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, as I mentioned before, my guest this week is Gretchen Rowe. She's the community liaison for Calvert School. And Gretchen, we're going to be talking a little bit about how single parents homeschool their children. I spoke to Mike Donnelly from the Homeschool Legal Defense Association about single homeschooling, he was um, brought up in a single parent family. His mother actually didn't homeschool herself, but he was very interested in the situation. So he did a survey and got over 200 responses from women and a few men who um, single homeschooled their children and how creatively they did it. So Gretchen, what I was going to ask you is, um, do you know any single homeschoolers and do you have any insight as to how they homeschool their children on their own? I do. I have to say that um, one of my dearest friends several years ago found herself in a situation where she became a single parent. She unfortunately was widowed young and they were homeschooling at the time. And she decided that she would c- 
complete her children's education. She wanted to do as little as possible to up, uh, root them in that process. And so um, she very creatively managed to um, continue to home educate her children all the way through high school. They're now adults. And um, we've actually had conversations about it, and they say how much they appreciated the sacrifices their mother made. Um, she was a nurse. She worked some graveyard shifts to be home with the girls to, uh, to educate them. And they had to assume a lot of responsibilities at a younger age, but I think that it, it worked well for them. It, probably in the middle of that, they would have said it was a very hard road to hoe, but I think in retrospect, they all feel that it was worth it. Well, and, and one of Mike Donnelly's respondents was also a widow, but she got criticism from her church. It was, it was well, you know, we'll help you. However, after a certain amount of time, it would be better if you went and got yourself, uh, you know, a better paying full-time job. So, that you, you know, why didn't you put your children in school or in daycare? And she just said, no, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. That is not what I, what I feel as though I'm called to do. So you're not only facing this this financial situation, you're also facing probably criticism from from your peers and from um, even your church members. Well, I think to a degree, homeschoolers kind of are used to that. (laughs) Yes, yes, you're right, you're right. We learn to acculturate ourselves to have an expectation for that. So it just takes a different form, and we um, sort of roll with it as it comes. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's wonderful how the children can um, look back and appreciate what their parents have done for them. Because I, I know sometimes I think, I wonder if they will ever appreciate <laughs> the hard work. Well, maybe when they have their own children, and you're already um, seeing that with your, with your grand, with, you've got grandchildren coming along, so your children are probably or your daughter probably is already saying well yeah now I understand what you're talking about (laughs) yes I will say that is the sweet spot in life when they finally come to you and say you were right (laughs) yes 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 and um, of course single homeschoolers don't have the security of a husband providing their main income for their family and um, in this economic climate where jobs are no longer as secure as they used to be how do homeschoolers, new homeschoolers, what would you say to these new homeschoolers who are maybe used to two income or, or planning on having a second income and all of a sudden they're, they're feeling called to homeschool and they're going to have to do it on one income? What, what do you say to those families? Is it possible once you've got yourself you know, caught up with this two income mindset and lifestyle? Well, I think uh, we... In our family, we're always um, very entrepreneurial in in looking for um, additional ways to have income. But we have been pretty much a single income family for the duration of um, our homeschooling experiences up until about five years ago when Calvert asked me um, to assume this part-time position. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if any family is considering doing this, one of the things that they need to do is to manage their finances carefully. And I know all of a sudden this is like the new conversation of, are you putting money away for a rainy day? Mm -hmm. But I really do believe that homeschool families probably need to think about that in this environment even more carefully than perhaps some of our other peers Mm -hmm. um, and not spend to the limits so that when that rainy day happens, um, they are not caught flat footed. And so some 
you know, I, I meet some people and I don't know how, how they could possibly manage on one income. But I did overhear a conversation that was very interesting at um, a small theatre that I belong to here in England. And there was this young couple and they just had a baby. And his wife, he was telling his friends, my wife has just decided that, or we have decided together, that she's going to stay at home uh, with, with, the, with the baby. And the friend said, oh, well, that's why you're working so hard and that's, that's why you, you're taking on all these extra jobs. And he said, well, no, I mean, we probably can't afford it, but this is what we have decided to do. So this is what we're going to do. and We're going to make it work. Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, yeah. I also think that, that you have said um, a very true statement there. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, said a statement that profoundly affected me years and years ago. And it has applied in all sorts of situations. He said, you know, the way a trapeze artist reaches out for that other bar is they throw their heart over the bar first mm -hmm. and the rest of their body follows. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of commitment you need to make when you choose to homeschool or choose any other endeavor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you wait until you can afford it, you're never going to be able to afford it. <laughs> well, none of us would have had children if we could have waited until we could afford it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and uh, it is a different kind of life. And it is. And, and the children sometimes can look around and say, well, why can't we do this? And why can't we do that? Why do we always have to share, you know, our, well, if they go to McDonald's and get, get a large fries, it's the large fries between the four of them. They can't have one each. And gradually over the years, they've learned to recognize that and understand and appreciate and be okay with that. But the peer pressure is just incredible on this money, the amount of money that is spent everywhere. You know, I, frankly, I have, we've, I've had discussions with my teenagers about that because the way we have chosen to educate them has meant that they have not had as many material pleasures as they might have had. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly enough, they, their point of view is, but we have lacked for nothing. Yeah, that's right. I give myself a guilt trip about, oh, I wish they could do X, Y, or Z, and they look at me like I'm a little bit lightheaded. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We the, the we don't give them probably um, as much credit. We we we're the ones that feel guilty, I suppose. We're we're beating ourselves up, saying, oh, you know, we can't give them the cent and the other. So we first need to understand that. The material aspect isn't everything, and then we can pass that very graciously on to our children. All right, so um, moving on now, we've got this situation where you've got a homeschooling family and they have given up their one income so that mum not only stays at home with the children before their school age, but stays at home with the children for the rest of their school career. And um, giving up that one income, and, you know, as we discussed, this is very much a two-income society. And so all of a sudden, that one income becomes very, very important because it pays all the bills, and it's, it's for the saving, and it's for the putting away for a rainy day. And what happens when, the, when there's a job loss looming, when, when, when a company is downsizing? Um, how... how, how would you, you know, advise homeschoolers who are maybe looking towards that? Well, first of all, um, there is nothing that ever occurs that doesn't happen for a reason. <clears throat> and I think um, in this economy, you can't go 50 feet before you can find someone who has a relatable situation to yours. Mm -hmm. 
So I think it's always a good idea, regardless of um, the crisis at hand, to keep a long-term view of um, it will work out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I am often reminded that God is sovereign, um, and he um, orders my steps. He doesn't necessarily tell me the path, as it mm-hmm. says in the Psalms, but he does order my steps. So I need to be faithful to the next step. Um, and that has, uh, frankly, in the last three years, that has been wisdom that we have had to cling to in, in my own family. Mm-hmm. So, Gretchen, can you can you tell us a little bit about what happened and, and how you as a family dealt with um, what happened? Um, <clears throat> Calvert approached me six years ago to begin working with them in a community capacity, and I loved it. I was doing it very part-time. And uh, it dovetailed nicely with the fact that um, I have been a public speaker for 30 years. I love to go out and encourage people about homeschooling. And it fit very nicely. My husband had uh, a wonderful job that he loved. Um, He was out and in the marketplace, but he worked from home. So that worked very well um, to wrap our endeavors together with each other. Um, And then we found ourselves uh, three years ago, May, um, his company went through a reorganization and a downsizing and he was the number one salesman in the company and they still let him go. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the two of us, I have to say, sort of looked at each other for a couple of days. It was not the first time he'd been through a downsizing when you're in sales. It, it happens with frequency, and so you learn to flex with it. But this was something that caught us completely flat-footed. We did not see it coming. And um, so we had to assess what we were going to do. And in all honesty, it has taken three years to sort what we would do. And um, it has really been a testimony to um, patience, which I don't profess to have a lot of, and faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to continue to walk out um, how we would approach what we were going to continue to do with our children and what we were going to do as a family. Well, and, and you know, staying a little bit with the financial, which isn't everything, but it's, it's a majority. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, sort of a fine line between the roof over your head and no roof over your head. Um, there, there are considerations like um, health insurance. Did you have to deal with that? Absolutely. Well, uh, to be Brutally honest with you, um, six years ago when I began work with Calvert, my husband started um, to work independently with um, a colleague, and we found ourselves needing health insurance. And um, he did that for two years, but when health insurance was costing us $26,000 a year, we realized that he could not do that. So he accepted an executive position with a, a company And it was that position he was let go from. Part of the reason that he had done that was because um, we needed the health insurance. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because we had put all of our eggs in one basket to start a business that had not had a return on investment, when he lost his job, we were not financially prepared for that storm. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while. I remember when I... I think my husband's always had this very insecure financial situation because he would go out on the road for several months and come home. Whatever money he made, we had no lo- no idea how long it had to last. So we, we, we were always, always budgeting. But when I lost my job, I was convinced I was going to get a job the next week. 
and that just went on and on and on. And we need to go on a quick break now, Gretchen, and we'll be back in about 90 seconds to, con- to continue our conversation. All right. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better, to make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. For those of you just joining us, I'm talking to Gretchen Rowe, Community Liaison for the Calvert School. We're talking about her husband's new job and the challenges and obstacles they had to overcome as he went through a long job search. We've been exploring the ups and downs of financial security or insecurity. So Gretchen, you were telling us that your husband lost his job and with it, obviously, his health insurance and how you were completely taken by surprise by the turn of events. Tell us how you managed. Well, one of the things that we were blessed to be able to do is because I had an affiliation with Calvert, um, uh, it took us a while to walk out that process, but Calvert actually agreed to hire me full-time. So I am a full-time homeschooling parent and a full-time employee of Calvert. And that's a rather unusual situation. Um, it does require an enormous amount of orchestration to make that work. Mm-hmm. I think in this process, though, with my husband being out of work, one would naturally assume that he would be able to assume some of the responsibilities of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Truth of the matter is, um, being a man, this kicked him square in the ego and took his feet out from under him so hard that he barely had enough energy to devote to the job search process. And it was um, an arduous one. He ultimately found another job, but it was more than two and a half years for him to be able to do that. Wow. So as soon as he lost his job, did you go to Calvert or were you, how, was there a process period there where you went? Well, I was already working for Calvert part-time. I let my um, immediate supervisor at Calvert know what had happened, and um, it really took Calvert uh, then a about about five months to decide that they would extend to me a position um, that included full-time employment. Mm-hmm. And um, so in that interim period of time, um, in all honesty, we had insurance. We have some children with some health challenges, so we weren't in the position not to have insurance. 
Cobra was exceedingly expensive, mm-hmm. and we pretty much exhausted the money that we had set in reserve mm-hmm. to pay for insurance between um, uh, May when he was laid off and September when Calvert hired me full time. Mm-hmm. Um, you're worried about all kinds of things because I know that when we had no income, we were worried. I called the mortgage company and said, okay. This isn't going to happen now, but what if I couldn't pay my mortgage one month? And they said, well, they would immediately come in and, and take over the house. There's no grace period. There's no, no. well, we can defer your mortgage payment for several months. You know, it was really interesting because um, that task sort of fell to me, and I made lots of phone calls. Our mortgage company actually said we could go through a loan modification process oh, because good. there's so much chaos going on here in the States with mm-hmm mortgages and and um, the housing market in general. Um, it was a nine-month process to renegotiate our mortgage to save $300 a month. Oh, no. Mortgage. Okay. <laughs> so I have to say, if time is money, it probably was not necessarily worth it. No. But, but the truth of the matter is we were proactive. We were raised in households where you did not accrue debt. You did not um, not pay your bills. And it was a tremendously difficult self-esteem issue to be in the position where the bills weren't getting paid. Mm-hmm. I know uh, that. Credit cards were a great resource. I know we were from a debt-free family, too. But there were times when I had to use my credit card and that goes I didn't listen to any financial advisors on the radio because I was doing everything opposite to what they were advising <laughs> uh, I really didn't want to go into my my retirement my my IRAs and um, do that I really wanted to try and keep some of my savings and we were able to but you know I was always able to pay off in the end when my husband you know would go back out on the road we were always able to pay off the debt and start again, and it was just such a you know a good feeling. But oh my gosh, it was! I, I used to think sometimes, can't you just go to Kroger and be a stocker at <laughs> night? You know, and um, it's so yeah. unreasonable, I suppose. But it's just kind of like we need the money. We have had that conversation. Um, needless to say, it probably didn't go any better in your household than it did in mine. <laughs> Um, you know, we as women deal with the practical and the immediate, and I think our husbands are burdened to look at the long term mm-hmm. in in a much different way. And um, I, 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 in retrospect, I can understand why my husband would not do that because he said um, it would take away from his opportunity to search for a job. And ultimately, he was contacted by a recruiter and was hired for another job, but he was also competing in a marketplace where he was up against people half his age with half the number of dependents or no dependents. And that makes, and it's, it has been an entirely new world. I would love to have said, to say that we were able to make this work without touching our savings, but that is not the truth of the matter. And um, so we find ourselves an entirely new economic strata at the ripe old age of 50. So, Well, and I carried on homeschooling, and I had in-laws who looked at me with my children at home and not working and looked at my husband, their son, 
struggling, pulling his hair out, wondering how he was going to make ends meet. And they would go, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Why can't she go out to work, you know? And I didn't because I was so convicted that homeschooling was what God had asked me to do. And he provided, Gretchen, it was amazing. He provided every step of the way in every aspect, emotionally, financially, you know, everything. And we were able in the end to enjoy the time we had together. We had a lot of time together, of course, and we were able to enjoy that. And that was so much better than fretting and worrying, getting angry. Absolutely. And I I have to say, um, we have been blessed here in our household that um, uh, God has provided at every turn. Um, a, A friend of mine said to me yesterday, well, who buys the groceries at your house? And I said, well, I do. And she said, well, are you are you making ends meet as far as the groceries are concerned? And I laughed and said, yes. And in all of this, no one has ever wanted for anything in so far as food or um, clothing or uh, warmth. And I recognize that we have been extraordinarily blessed in the process because it could have been a much more difficult process. Um, and I think part of the thing that, that wives need to realize is in this process, you need to be an emotional support to your husband because we identify ourselves by the ability to manage our homes and our children and our relationships. And they identify themselves by the work in which they engage. Mm -hmm. And so needing to provide support for a spouse in that situation is uh, sometimes uh, you end up with a tongue full of holes for the things you'd like to say but don't mm-hmm. um, in the process of being the help meet we're supposed to be designed to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and I had, a, I had a friend who once said to me, well, but what if you can't afford to do this? Or what if something such and such comes up? And then she looked at me and she said, well, you've always been able to manage on however much or little that you've had. So whatever we were doing as a family, we were okay. And it was, it was true. I mean, it comes straight from Paul, doesn't it? Paul, St. Paul says, you know, manage on what you have. And, you know, you will always be all right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that, that is such a thing to say to the children as well, because, they, you know, they, my son, my, my zookeeper son is having a hard time. He's living in our house. And so he's living rent-free, and he's he's living quite a high life, you know. But he has savings. He's he's very good at that. But he wants to move out when we go home and get an apartment with his older brother. And I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, well, you can't even pay us our, our utility bill. How are you going to pay rent? And, you know, he said, well, I need a higher-paying job. I said, no, 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 you just need to... Um, live within your means. You've got this much money coming in. You don't need to have twice as much going out every month, you know. So. <laughs> and you do you talk about that in your webinars. Don't you? Well, you talk about time management. And time management, I think, is as important as, you know, managing your money. I think it does make a difference. I think it's sometimes um, uh, if time is a currency, um, sometimes we spend it too freely. Mm-hmm. Uh And I was just saying this morning to one of my kids that they needed to be conscious of of the time that was available to them today and not squander it because they had 
several tasks they wanted to accomplish today. Yeah. yeah. I think that is also, you know, sort of like learning to ride a bicycle. You didn't pick up a bicycle and ride it off the first time. You ran into things for quite some time. And, and that's the way time management works as well. You run into things and say, well, that didn't work. Um, and a smart person assesses what didn't work and then figures out how to make it work from there. <laughs> so um, how is the job going? I love what I do for Calvert because it is the best of all possible worlds. I still do get the opportunity to educate my children, although sometimes that education occurs in the margins. You'll find us doing school sometimes at 6 o'clock at night and sometimes very early in the morning. I'm very blessed to work from home about 80% of the time. And that therein is the reason I can still work and homeschool. Um, there are times when I have to say to a child, go outside and play. I need to take a phone call as my three boys are running around the backyard and I'm talking to you today. Mm-hmm. And there are times when um, I I don't feel like there are any margins in my own life. I I have to remember, you know, keep your eye on the goal that the goal is to raise contributing members of adult society. And I get a very privileged opportunity to do that by utilizing Calvert and um, sharing my wisdom with them. And that what little wisdom I have has, it's been a real blessing. It's been a joy and an opportunity. Well, and Calvert is fantastic at that um, because as the children get older, they can read their lesson manuals themselves and they can do a lot. It does train for them to do independent work. So um, I felt always when I was working with Calvert that, you know, if there was a day or a week when I really couldn't do my best, that Calvert would, would, would you know, step up to the post and help me along the way. Right. I could not envision, I don't think I could make, a relationship like this work with anything else. Yeah. Um, it's Calvert's support system that really makes it possible for me to do this. So, yeah. 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 Well, Gretchen, we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you so, so much for talking to me the, this morning for you. It's this, this beautiful afternoon here. We have a beautiful spring day and I have a yellow bush outside my window and they're leaves. They're not flowers and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I have red robins in it. So you can imagine the yellow and the red are just exquisite. That's beautiful. It is. It is beautiful. And um, I hope that you have just a a wonderful weekend and a a wonderful spring there in Maryland. I bet it's beautiful there in Maryland. It is beautiful. We had no winter to speak of this this year. Um, Yesterday morning, we woke up to 30 degrees. This morning, it's about 50. And by the time I sent the boys out at 10, it was um, 65. So it's just a beautiful day here. Good. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your day and you have a great weekend. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you again. I will look forward to it, Vivian. It's always a great pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. 
and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Hard on the heels of the conversation I've just had with Gretchen Rowe from the Calvert School, I found three really good blogs online about job hunting after the age of 50. Two by John Groth and one by Erin Palmer. Gretchen and I both agreed that employers routinely look for younger candidates who don't have so many or even any dependents, whose expenses aren't so high and whose salary requirements aren't so prohibitive in this world of cutting costs and job sharing. Extensive experience, which comes at a price they think, if only they knew, doesn't seem to count for much in this day and age big grin. They don't even give applying candidates whose CV even hints that they may be a little long in the tooth a chance to meet face-to-face and sell their higher ability. From personal observation, some of the company owners and headhunters are young enough to be our children. When my blue-eyed cowboy, who falls into this niche, says he'll take less for more, they still shy away as if they're afraid he'll intimidate the bejeebies out of them or he won't be able to learn the new technology, of which there is an astounding amount if you haven't kept up with the times. Once we hit 50, we seem to be rendered completely moronic in the eyes of those in charge of filling few positions that may have opened up in their companies. If we're hapless enough to be caught in a sea of job hunters, which is happening more frequently around me, making it an age-related and unhealthy prospect, would-be older employees find themselves coming up against the youth in possession of more digital savvy. We older, mature applicants need to strut the fact that we can spell and write in more than 140 keystroke increments. However, does this matter? Sometimes I'm afraid it seems not, and very often it's seen as a disadvantage. The economic and business decline, the falling demand for certain jobs and careers, and the daily birth of new jobs whose titles can only be deciphered by those in the know, spell bad news for the more mature generation. Many job hunters after 50 have given up the chase or accepted positions well below their skill and qualification level, says John Groff. When the over 50-year-old finally dons his hiking boots to tramp the pavements for gainful employment, he meets his first obstacle, the communication system. It seems to have a language of its own. For the most part, submission of CVs or resumes and follow-up interviews are conducted via the internet. No more snail mail or face-to-face encounters. More and more businesses are using video Skype to interview, which is okay, at least you're in the comfort of your own home. But when the screen messes up and begins to digitise not only your picture but also your voice, goodness knows what kind of impression you're making on the other end. In his blog, John Groth offers these suggestions to get midlifers back into the job market again. Build your online presence. 
Now, what does that mean? It means follow in your teenager's footsteps and get yourself a Facebook account, no matter how against the grain this goes, even reputable conservative companies like HSLDA boast an FB account. So why be squeamish? Have a colleague invite you to join LinkedIn, a little staider than Facebook, but it gets your name out there and on the airwaves. Once the electronically CV has been read, you'll be looked for online. And if no results come up, the resume will get filed. You know where. Write a compelling profile. Take your time. Maybe hire someone to do it for you. Set yourself apart in your field. Make a prospective employer want to contact you for the second round in the process. LinkedIn allows for personal recommendations written by colleagues and friends to be posted to your profile once you figure it out. A new form of I'll rub your back if you'll rub mine is the name of the game here. And before we go any further, you will have to spend some time familiarising yourself with this social media arm of communication. But once sussed, it's powerful. Dare I also suggest... Twitter, start a blog, write about your career or the industry you worked in, comment on related blogs posted by other like-minded people. Soon, when a recruiter Googles your name, a whole list of positive information will show up. Try it now to check how invisible you currently are. And then in a month after you've plastered yourself all over the internet, remember though to heed the warnings you give your teenagers. Don't post any informational photos you wouldn't want a prospective boss seeing. List your accomplishments. Prospective employers want to know how you saved money, made money, improved something, did something faster and less expensively, or otherwise created a benefit for your previous employer. You'll have to tailor your resume to the needs of your potential employer, which will mean more work, but it will be worth it. For example, if the employer's number one requirement is cost-cutting, your future listed accomplishment may be developed plan to consolidate functions and cut costs, resulting in an annual savings of over $210,000 with increased customer satisfaction. In this way, your accomplishment and achievement will overcome age as the employer will be able to see how you can help his bottom line positively. John Groth's last piece of advice is the best, so keep listening. No matter that my southern gentleman doesn't put his birth date on his resume, somehow they know he goes way back. Something to do with some of the now dead artists he's worked with, perhaps? Get rid of the dates. Go back only 10 to 15 years. Remove all older work history, no matter how impressive. The CV reader will be seeing his granddad who wants to, who wants to hire grandpa, even if he looks, speaks and acts half his age. He won't get a shoe in if the resume reeks of ancient history. If you absolutely have to include all those superstars from the days of silent movies, then put them in a special interest section entitled Other Professional Experience. With a bit of luck, they may not think too hard about who other is. Along with professional experience, you may also want to include professional education, which is more modern and will bring you in line with your children's skills on the internet. List all additional education that specifically relates to the job requirements. Self-study is a good one. Start reading a lot. Include seminars, workshops, conferences and in-house training on your list. Bottom line in all of this is control. What you can control. 
Age bias when hiring is a fact with some employers. Your years of relevant experience could be valuable to any employer. You don't have to apologize for your double digits in the 50s or your vast experience. Be positive and sell your benefits and your real age will fade into the background. Adding high or low lights to your hair won't go amiss either. Ever consider getting a fake ID? Or better still, try saying you're older and get looks of, wow, you only look just kidding. You can also control your overall attitude. Keep upbeat. Associate with others with the same mindset. Read and listen to motivational, motivational books. It's been proven that positive can-do job hunters get quicker and more satisfying results from their job, job search. Goodness me, tongue twister in there. If you concentrate on what you can control, remain positive and sell the benefits you have to offer, then your stalled job hunt after 50 will get back on track. John Groth has changed careers seven times during his working life. So go to his website to learn more. www.careersafter50.com My star barista has started a new incentive at her Starbucks in Southend. She had to go in one evening for extra training with the other staff members and here's what she learned. Ask the customer their name so that it can be written on the cup and used. Now, in America, this has been the mode of operation since Starbucks opened. But in England, as Malia discovered last summer, it is seen as intrusive and forward. I asked her today how the new system was working and she said, oh, they're all right with me. It's the other baristas they give hard time to. Is it the brash American accent that allows my daughter to get away with a familiar asking of names? She said a lot of them gave their last names. Or is it the name on her name tag? Texas. Too funny. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about making tentative plans for leaving and how I wasn't happy thinking about it yet. I asked my blue-eyed cowboy where he'd like our last meal to be, which restaurant along the high street I meant. And he looked at me and said, I don't really want to talk about that yet. He is enjoying living here. I knew it. So mum's the word as far as coming to the end of our stay goes. My oldest son he worked at South by Southwest in Austin a few weeks ago. Now he's amazing because he not only has a job with a film company, but he also has a job with a temp agency that sends him to all kinds of different venues. And he works at a local theatre where we used to volunteer part time. Anyway, he was working at this point for 10 days for AT&T at South by Southwest and demonstrating a new device, selling it to the public, but he didn't have a quota, which he was relieved about. He decided sales was not his cup of tea. There he met a music lawyer from England, and he said she had this cute little English accent. When he found out where she lived, he called us and started his conversation with, I've met a girl. He never tells us that, so we thought, uh-oh, he never tells us these things. But it turns out that she lives next door to us on Albemarle Road here in Beckenham. How coincidental is that? And one evening when we were outside Skyping on my iPod, he said, now show me where this Windsor Court is. So Hubs walked up the garden a few paces and pointed the iPod to the back of the building next door. So guess what? He's coming to visit us. And I mean that, although he may have a little of an ulterior motive, he is coming to see us at the end of April, in two weeks, actually. I think he wants to revisit old haunts, though he doesn't want anything to be too organised. 
Unlike Simon, who wanted to do all new stuff, and Paris, who was happy to explore the West End once and then stay at home and chill out with us. How different they all are. We're looking forward to his visit, and Malie is going to try and get some time off so that she can enjoy him too. Well, with that little piece of news, I've come to the end of my time again, so I'll have to say goodbye for another week. We're going to take a quick trip down the Thames this weekend before Malia returns to school. I hate seeing her go, even if I do get my office and yoga room back. I'll be here, same time, same place next week, so without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief, and Miss You Three in Texas, the hard-working staff at Tokenet Radio, my guest Gretchen Rowe, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne in Lindale, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pam, Charlotte, and many others who are a part of my growing audience. Don't forget to listen to my friend Sandy Fowler, Heartfield Holidays, right here, live on Mondays at 1 Central. And my stay-at-home parent, Ali Laprit, who is at the other end of today, at 5 p.m. Central. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Numbers 6, 24 to 26. Doop, doop, doop. Doop, doop, Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.